You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. El podcast interplanetario. La exploración del espacio en beneficio de toda la humanidad. Sus anfitriones en Inglaterra y los Países Bajos, Matt Russell y Julio Aprea. Oh yeah, Buckminster Fuller. What a dude. Yeah. It's a bit of a futuristic episode, isn't it, this one, Julio? Indeed, indeed. So we quoted uh, Buckminster Fuller, who was an American architect uh, known for many, many things, but he actually popularized the term Spaceship Earth. I didn't know that. Spaceship Earth. It's a very cool concept, Spaceship Earth. I've always thought, isn't it lucky that we've got loads of fossil fuels under the ground for our use? And he brings that up in in some of his quotes about Spaceship Earth. We'd be absolutely ridiculous if we sort of used up all our reserves of fuel that have been left there for us over billions of years. In just 100 years or 200 years. In a a blink of an eye. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we found oil. Billions of years it took to make. Yeah, yeah, we've we've burnt it. Burned through it. Uh, he's also known for buckyballs. Well, actually, buckyballs are named after him. He uh, developed the concept of the of, of the geodesic dome. It's an architectural sort of design uh, structure. And scientists later name a certain type of uh, uh, atomic structures, molecules that ha- sort of sh- seem to resemble this shape. And in honor of, of Buckminster Fuller, they call them buckyballs. In fact, some episodes ago, I believe you were discussing about this with uh, with Lynn, in which buckyballs were discovered in space. Which is very cool, isn't it? Carbon-60 is the buckyball because, yeah, it's, it's like a football yeah. in terms of its hexagons and pentagons. And we've actually got a, we've actually got a podcast coming up um, where a space station is built in a similar sort of way using the football hexagons and pentagons, C60. But the other carbon, those larger ca- carbon uh, molecules, are, are known as fullerenes after Rich, Richard Buckminster Fuller. So it's the whole bunch are named after him because of that kind of geodesic design that they all have. Cool, huh? Indeed. So, but why are, why are we talking about the future today, Matt? Uh, because we have an awesome guest. Uh, well, I do say awesome because because he's presumably one of the best ever jobs to have. The head of the str- strategy and coordination group within human and robotic exploration. Forisa for the European Space Agency. That's pretty cool. Didier Schmidt. Didier Schmidt. And in fact, what's what's cool about his job is that he has to. He has to do many things, but he also can allow himself to think of the future and shape the future of what um, organizations like ESA will do in the next 20, 30 years. And in fact, we discussed a little bit about it. Yeah, I think I actually think that was one of the most interesting things about the interview right at the end. Amazing insight, isn't it, to how you can get become a better manager and a better engineer and a better scientist, I think. Yeah, indeed. Well, well, we'll get to it. We'll get to it, I think. Let's not spoil it. Yeah, it's very inspirational. And talking of inspirational, Didier does go into into detail about the latest um, European Space Agency announcement of astronauts. Indeed, the current astronaut selection that it's ongoing. It opened a few days ago, 
depending on when you <laughs> listen to this podcast, <laughs> everyone should check the requirements. And if they ever dream of going to space, if they can pass these minimum requirements, they should definitely apply. This is really open for everyone. If you think it's too superhuman to be an astronaut, just think again. If you really want to do it, apply. Indeed. There's some really interesting things that, that Didier says about it. And in particular, there's no bias against anyone. Indeed, indeed. And and for for those that actually want to apply, they should probably listen to these episodes for some tips and hints, right? Yeah. <laughs> in fact, we tried to get some tips and hints out of him. Oh, but, he was uh, being very correct about it. But <laughs> very, okay. very cagey. He doesn't he doesn't want anyone to uh, have a an advantage by listening to the interplanetary podcast, which of course you will have a slight if advantage. If you listen to the interplanetary podcast, uh, you already have an advantage. In the, yeah. in the world of space, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, if you go to the ESA website, there is an astronaut applicant handbook. Give you some indications of, of what's coming but up. Okay, um, so Didier uh, has a long career at ESA. Okay, he, his background, he's, he's, he's a scientist, but he's also a physician, a medical doctor. Being a medical doctor, and as we'll hear, he's, um, he's very much involved and knows his onions about humans in space and, and, and look um, at how and, <laughs> how much he wanted to work on these topics that i think when he was in medical school or i think his dissertation or master's dissertation i i cannot recall exactly but it was on the health risks of traveling to mars yeah even as a doctor he's thinking about going I just, to mars i, I which just is, which is I, I want to imagine the class the classroom like you have all these <laughs> other medical doctors that want to think i don't know are talking about like I don't know, heart transplants or whatever, and 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 you have this particular um, research on health risks of going to Mars. Reminds me of when I was at university as well. We were talking about I was doing industrial engineering, so we had to choose a topic and do presentations, and everyone was like, "Oh, I don't know, uh, manufacturing procedures, optimization, and whatever topics like that." Uh, and I I went into the logistics of going to the moon. And I was not studying anything related to space, but I guess you always you you you, you um, if you have the love for for the topic, you will always if you have freedom to choose a topic, you go for it, right? Uh, I, do you know what? It's it's my big miss is when I was studying acoustics that I didn't realize that acoustics would have been very useful when it came to things like rockets and stuff. I just didn't realize it at the time. Otherwise, I probably would have tried to have made that my <laughs> my final project but hey i still had fun but, but this is the thing about the space industry and the space industry is not like you it's not like everyone is either a space engineer or an astronaut or a fighter pilot let's say no it, it's it's like any other industry you need lots of disciplines actually acoustic engineering is is a pretty big topic with rockets as you say but even i don't know accountants marketing, uh, finance, lawyers. Uh, yeah, no, I even noticed that there was a sound engineer at NASA. And I thought, oh, yeah, I definitely could have <laughs> done that job if I'd have been American. That's the, uh, that's the dream job. Um, I'm going to do a shout-out uh, because I need to shout-out the ACE-level patrons that have gone from two to four. So we've. Uh, I, I need to shout out to the Justins as normal, Justin Young and Justin Roberts. But it turns out you don't just need the name Justin to be an ace. There's uh, Drew Wright and Sigmund Ede have joined them. 
as ace level patrons and i can only say i cannot believe how generous they are and what utter legends these four human beings are what an amazing crew and it keeps the whole podcast going so thank you very much guys and um, i'll read out the uh, skylon patrons at the end and there's a few new ones in there so stay tuned to hear your name because it's so thrilling to hear your name you must have felt it julio when i read your name out I used to. No. <laughs> now you read my name almost once a month, I, I guess. Yeah, now, now it's, well, two or three times a yeah. month. Okay, so, so Matt, so then uh, Didier then uh, not only worked and is working now at ESA, but he also spent some time at the European Commission with a focus on, on space policy, where he coordinated scientific and technological foresight, thinking about the future, you see? Mm-hmm. He co-authored um, a report for the European, European Union on future trends called Global Trends to 2030. I've really enjoyed researching Didier. He's, he's written some really, really cool things. Uh, and I, we bring some of them up. Good thoughts on Elon Musk. And he's got some good thoughts on, on that kind of new space in general. He's really thought hard, hasn't he, about how he communicates a positive space message without overselling it with science fiction. He, he's an optimist when it comes to the future. Mm. I admire that. Quite, quite a number of publications. So we, we'll include a list of them, of some of them, in the show notes, right? Maybe mm-hmm. I can highlight, uh, first of all, a comic book that he has been re- releasing recently. There are The first two are already published in French, and the first one is already translated to English. The name of the book is... Do you want to pronounce it in French? You have a better French accent. Uh, safari Rouge. Or Red Safari. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I, I read a little bit of the beginning. Um, it, it, it's a book about the octopus, an Earth-Mars cycler, and its crew in the year 2080. In fact, all the links to Didier's work will stick in these show notes because they're really, really cool. I have to say, I've been looking for a very simple outline of expert opinion on what the future looks like and i think this is this is about as good as i could i could think it could be you know a very very high up scientist at european space agency whose job it is to think about global trends (laughs) and uh yeah writing stuff engaging with the public about what's going to happen in space in the next 80 years it's brilliant or the next 60 years it's really cool you know how much of a fan I am of what I call explorers, right? Mm-hmm. He also happens to be an explorer. He spent some time in Antarctica, but he also spearheaded a bunch of what we of the different analog projects that we have at ESA and analog studies. For instance, uh, we talk a little bit about the, this program in which ESA sends a medical doctor once a year to Antarctica, to the Concordia Station. And also, the, he was somewhat involved with the Mars 500, which I guess we have covered in the past. Uh, MOOC Mars. So if you've not heard of a MOOC before, it's a magazine book. That's, In other words, a magazine that's supposed to stay on the shelf a little bit longer than a magazine. So it's almost a book, but not quite. Even though, really, it's a book. <laughs> Except with lots more pictures uh so uh yeah that that's he's the editor-in-chief of mooc mars now correct me if i'm uh, correct me if i'm wrong here julio but that's lots and lots of european space agency engineers and scientists who he's got 
to communicate their ideas as simply as possible so that the public can understand what the European Space Agency is up to in a better way. Yes, indeed. Many of my colleagues have written in this publication, but it tries to gather all of these people working in, in the space industry in Europe that have this thirst for for outreach and to communicate to the public. I, I did a little bit of a contribution there on the first number on, on the Ariane 6 article. Uh, what, what's cool about it is it's not that the engineers can write whatever they want and that gets published. It is, it's really tough, the editing, to make it approachable to the general public. But the whole reason why this came into existence is because a survey that was conducted for ESA by Harris Interactive showed that only four out of ten Europeans felt like they'd ha- they got they'd got any real good knowledge about what ESA were up to. So, because obviously a big chunk of your tax goes on European Space Agency, if if you're no, actually, I think the last calculation was like the average European pays the equivalent to a cinema entrance. You know, some people year. can't afford a, to go to the cinema in the year. So, you know, it's, it'd be nice to know where your money went, isn't it, really? Cappuccino at Starbucks. The best thing about it is that you probably know that your country actually gets more money back in the end with all the technological oh, indeed, indeed. And, and that, and industry that, that gets that set funding, up. That, that funding that uh, goes to ESA does not stay at ESA, goes back to the industry of those respective countries and, and develops jobs, know-how. It, 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 it has a sort of, a, what in, in economy you call a sort of multiplier effect. And it, okay, space, science. If a country invests in science, it's, uh, by definition, it's not an expense. It's, it's, it's an investment that will pay off in one way or another in the future. Sometimes in the longer term, sometimes in a very short term because you're just let's say you're building rockets with your industry. That's a very short-term return to your economy with all these jobs that you're creating. Yeah, I mean, it's, which, is, which, is, which was my point, really. In a very simplistic way, you want to win the contracts to build, like Airbus to build the ExoMars rover, the Rosalind Franklin rover. <laughs> and they want to win it because, yeah, it's going to cost loads of money, but the actual expertise and the jobs and the technology and, and the spin-offs and everything else will generate more money than it costs in in in, in terms of the investment. I don't know if it generates more money than it costs. I would not uh, I would not bank on that, especially when you're talking about missions to Mars that are not really attached to an income after. No, uh, but, but the, it's more but the, of a but, what but you call an, a, 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 something that is not tangible. Again, jobs, knowledge. Spin-offs, okay? Maybe some research you yeah. do in those areas then can be picked up by the same company and, and redevelop it in a sort of different yeah, product that, that really hits the economy. Yeah, exactly. Well, in fact, if you think about the spin-off of Apollo, for example... Yeah, the classic mention of Velcro or... No, don't mention Velcro because <laughs> that's obviously wrong. I know, but, but uh, so many people say that. I know, but it's not. It's things like computing, management techniques, all those kind of things. And, of course, the, the, there is one about uh, the way that buildings are built in, uh, in, in earthquake zones 
with a particular type of vibration control and stuff like that <laughs> that comes from the Apollo program. But there are so many. It's the fact that it made America this technologically advanced nation, which then pushed its economy to be the biggest in the world by far. And but, there's a very good chapter in in, let, let in me go one Sapiens step, about this. Let me go one step even before that. Not even space uh, on on sea exploration and and the U.S. Navy. Hmm. So some of the some of the best practices you use today to carry on like massive projects, things that by now any, everyone knows like Gantt charts or these sort of calculations to the different schedules of a project, <laughs> they all come from the U.S. Navy. Uh, Julio, shall we just listen to DDA now? Yes, indeed. Écoute. Ah. <laughs> You thief. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. Welcome to the podcast, Didier. Good evening. I know that you present to the public a lot, but I kind of wanted to bring you to the podcast because I see you as an optimistic futurist. How do you keep your optimism in these in these times that we're living? Uh, I mean, thank you. And first of all, what I would say is that those who are not optimistic, they just should sh shut up and, uh, you know, not bother other people with their opinions. So or just do something else, uh, gardening or, or, I don't know. I mean, I'm actually optimistic because I do think about the future. You know, if you're not optimistic, you don't think about the future and you criticize even the what has passed or, or the present or God knows what. I've done a, a lot of foresight, actually, when I was... Uh, at the EU, I was 10 years in Brussels, and, and two of those years I was head of the uh, science and technology foresight in policy uh, group of the president of the European Commission. So it was quite quite fun. I had to deal with 20 different uh, directorates general, so from agriculture to transport, to environment, to, to everything, which was quite quite interesting. That, I mean, I, I had, to, of course, to um, do a lot of work and, and to see, you know, in, in any field what should be the, the future and, and, and how to get there and so on with supercomputing and, and other things like this. And then instead of, you know, doing these reports for the president and, and others and so on, I thought, well, in addition, it would be interesting, you know, for the general public to, to know what we're doing. And then I started actually to to uh, to write for the press, and I have quite uh, written a lot of papers, uh, mostly in the in the French uh, national press. And that was interesting because then you, of course, you get feedback and so on, and 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 then it becomes quite interesting because you see that people actually enjoy, you know, thinking about or to to provoke them to think about the future. You know, if you write about what you're doing and, and, and looking 10, 15, 30, even more years ahead, um, most of the people I, I, I have I had I interfaced with were very interested. And at the end, actually, I even write, wrote, wrote a book about it. I've noticed in previous interviews where, where you've, you've talked about Elon Musk, for example, and I think you've been critical about Elon Musk. You call it his kind of exploration uh, messianism. And my question is that that whole idea of getting people enthused into space, because obviously that's what the Interplanetary Podcast is about, is trying to get people enthusiastic about space. In your criticism of Musk, is that born out of the fact that it raises unreasonable expectations and therefore that ends with inevitable disappointments? Obviously, it brings it to the attention of everyone and gets everyone interested but is there a sting in the tail uh yeah i mean first of all let me praise this person as well because of course you know oh he has done uh, a lot you know to move uh, uh things and and he has put in question a lot of paradigms and so on i must say even 
even the French now uh, start to say, oh, he was right, but uh, that's 15, <laughs> 15 years late. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, what is, uh, I think what is very interesting, of course, is if you have people which are so visionary, it's, it's very nice. If on top they have a lot of money and they are convinced that they should put their own money into the system, if they're able to convince a government, uh, like at, in the U.S. And, and and NASA in particular, to get even more money, that is that is that is really that's amazing. Now, of course, this is this is the positive aspect. The more negative, so to say, aspect is the fact that, of course, then um, you know these people have then too much confidence in themselves and into the future, and just saying. Then in, a, in 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 two or three uh, years from now we will be having uh, a thousand people on the moon and and maybe as much on on Mars a little later, that that's uh, that's an overshoot. Um, so and therefore you know what I what I often hear uh, and some or sometimes hear when I say you you know we do now the planning you know uh, advanced planning for for going to Mars uh, human missions and so on finally. Um, and then some people say, "But haven't we been there already?" You know, uh, and this is this is because of certain people, <laughs> some of which we just mentioned, uh, who are not realistic. But at the same time, I must say, if they would be realistic, <clears throat> they wouldn't have dared to do what they have done. You see what I mean? You have mm. this dichotomy in this psychological mood. If you are too realistic, you don't even dare. If you are dreaming and 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 having no inhibition, then you do great things. But at the same time, you know there are a few aspects where where of course uh, um, it's not so it's not so obvious and 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 things are are not that simple. And and in some point, I, I guess his optimistic planning also helps put uh, a little bit of pressure on on his own teams to. To push and, and get their get things done faster, right? That, than the usual pace of our industry. It's of course he's not a typical manager. Uh, you know, a, a real manager he knows the job, and therefore he uh, he has empathy in principle with the people he works with, and he knows the limits, and so he doesn't push you know the limits too much because he knows it's not feasible. But uh, people who have this other psychological trait, you know, who don't see the the problems, they just Push and push and push, and of course something comes out. Uh, now you, I'm sure, and you know this. I mean, in the beginning uh, of his of his uh, of his adventure in, in SpaceX, you know, um, uh, people people stayed a few weeks or a few months. You know, <laughs> um, now I think it's uh, of course much stabler because you know if you push people too much, of course, I mean everybody has its limits. Of course, some burnout. I would like to focus a little bit on more on, on, on your beginnings at ESA, the types of jobs that you have done. Here in the podcast, uh, we, we, we really like to talk about analogs. We had a few episodes ago an, um, uh, an interview with one of your colleagues, Loredana Besone, where we spoke about caves, we spoke about Pangea. But you have played a key role in this activity in which ESA sends a medical doctor every year to the Concordia Research Station in the Antarctic. You also had a role, I understand, with Mars 500. I, I wanted to ask you first uh, to tell us a little bit the, the story of Concordia and the ESA involvement and, and this type of research that is being done thanks to ESA there. Um, 
Well, that, that brings me back a long, a, a long way back. I mean, I have worked with the French Antarctic programs in the early 90s already. So I had experiments uh, in, in Antarctica at Dumont d'Urville, uh, not myself there, but uh, the, um, the medical doctor actually, uh, the winter over doctor, had, had did experiments, uh, you know, on the immune system, uh, of where I was, uh, <clears throat> of course, heading a, a significant uh, research program on extreme environments and and uh, immune system. Um, and therefore, when I came to ESA and had this responsibility of uh, the, the life science program and preparing for the space station program, for me, it was relatively obvious that we would need these extreme environments also in the program. Um, when I came to ESA in 97, uh, you know, there were just a, a few tens of scientists, you know, who were working with the program. It was, of course, the, the Space Lab uh, uh, era and the end of the Space Lab era. Um, and so it's not only the Antarctic program that I that I brought into the into the uh, the, the activities. A lot of about sixty ground-based facilities, actually, from radiation to uh, you know uh, whatever simulation uh, of of uh, uh, yeah space flight and and space conditions, and even the parabolic flights at that time they were not used for life sciences. Because nobody thought it could be, it could it could work, uh, or it could be of interest to have 20, 20, 22 seconds of microgravity. But I, in the early nineties, very early nineties, ninety one, ninety even, I did parabolic flights, test flights, um, and I did. I think I was the first one doing biological experiments on board the flight, so I I knew it's possible. And uh, guess what? Uh, many years later, you know, we have now more than fifty percent of the of the parabolic flights are 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 on physiology and and, and human physiology and biology. So it was not just the Antarctic program that I brought in a, a lot of other uh, activities. Uh, and the way I did it, uh, of course, I knew I knew the people who were working in the, in the program, at least in in France. So in two thousand three, uh, I I of course knew that they were. Building this, starting to build the Concordia station already in the 90s, and then they said, "Okay, fine, we are uh, completing the station in 2005." Um, and therefore, uh, I rushed a little bit, and, and I had the right agreements, and, and we were part of the of the activity in, in during the first winter over. And since then, it's it was nonstop. I've got a quick question about uh, about the analogs that you've been running. So I, I'm assuming most of it's to do with how the human body is going to react to long space duration flights, going to Mars, et cetera, et cetera. And we're doing all that research. As someone that sort of sits on the sidelines and doesn't read all the research and read the sort of nitty gritty, it's really hard for me to judge how much sort of knowledge has been learned. So what what are the sort of really big takeaways from the analogs that have been learned over, the, say, the last 25 years that are surprising or <laughs> the, the, the really big hurdles for this fleshy body to enter space and stay in space? Yeah, there are a number of things, of course. I mean, in, if if you look at, you know, uh, uh, countermeasures, for example, physical countermeasures, you know, to keep the astronauts fit. Um, and we have done these experiments before the space station program, of course, um, mostly with the, with the Russians and, and, and others, like clinical research, where you put people, you know, uh, lying flat for weeks and, and months. Um, you really uh, understand much better the physiology of deconditioning. 
meaning uh you know losing uh, uh, body mass of course uh, uh, bone uh, uh, issues uh, structure issues and 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 uh, um yeah muscle weakness and and heart uh, shrinking so to say if you want to to put it very simply so a lot of these things in including the neuroscience uh, aspects you know balance uh, disorders and so on so you understand much more what's going on and then you can imagine much better and test much better the countermeasures so this is this is roughly what what we are doing now for the confinement itself you if you just put people in a box without you know putting them in bed for uh, uh, for bed rest what we call bed rest studies um you have this uh, the psychological interface. You know, if you have people in the bed in the hospital, so to say, well, the psychological relations in a group is very limited. Um, but then if you put them in a box for weeks and months, uh, then they have to interface in everyday life and so on. So on top of the, of the, of the uh, so to say, the physiology, and uh, you have also the psychological uh, uh, issues that you, that you, um, that you pinpoint. And there... What is interesting is that at the end, if you do a series of these studies, and, and we have seen this in Antarctica uh, all the time, um, no mission resembles another one. You know, if you do studies on the physiology, you have uh, you know, bone demineralization, you can have statistics, it's nearly always you know, constant in a group and so on, depending on the duration, on the age of people and so on. So you can do the predictions and then you can do the corrections. In, in the psychological uh, uh, studies, it really, really at the end depends on people. You know, you cannot say uh, over 10, 15 studies, you know, this is the trend and this is what, 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 this, what is go going to happen and you can extrapolate and correct. Not really. Because it takes only one or two people in a, a small group to put everything, you know, to ruin the whole thing. And we have seen this over and over in, in Antarctica in the winter over uh, uh, mostly. So this was very interesting, which means that if you choosing not only the people, but the group of people who will fly to Mars and, and spend three years in a box, I mean, this will become the essential, the essential really, if it goes down to the, the very um, hardcore, you know, decisions, this is where, this is the most important decision. Which group will you interface, will you choose? Now, of course, the problem is that uh, when we go to Mars, you know, every big country who will participate, like the US and, and hopefully others and, and, and us in Europe and so on, um, there will be not so many choices, you know, to to select the right the right people because they will more or less be sometimes imposed, you know, by their national uh, uh, authorities and so on. But does it make a good group? This will be a really the biggest question. You know, all the, all the rest we can study radiation and, and 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 physiological and other deconditioning and so on, and we can find countermeasures for the psychological behavior. We can't predict, and there also it means that. During the mission, you will have to have constant monitoring and anticipation of what will go wrong. It's too late when when a problem appears. I have uh, uh, some experience with this because I, in 2001, I was in a, in a confinement study in in Moscow, in in the uh, Institute of Biomedical uh, Problems. Uh, where there was a crew of uh, who already spent four months when I entered uh, into the simulator, and they had f still four months to go. 
So they were in, in, there were only Russians, for Russians. And then there was another module which was connected with what they called an international crew. Um, and there has been a problem, and there was only one woman, a young, young woman. And there has been a problem that I will not describe uh, uh, between uh, one of the persons and this, and this young lady. It wasn't dramatic, so to say, but because it was in this confinement environment, you know, it took, it took a lot of, uh, let's say, momentum. And, uh, you know, if you can't solve your problem because you can't escape from a box and, and, you, are, and, and you dwell on this every, every day, it gets worse and worse. So the problem has not been anticipated. The problem has been, um, let's say, uh, put a, pushed aside by saying, oh, that's not a big thing, you know, and it became the biggest problem of the whole simulation, you know. Um, so, and this is where we have to be uh, much, much better in, 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 future, in future programs. Does that come into, because obviously there's the ESA astronaut selection, does that come into that? So all that work that's come gone before is uh, is that is that going into say the the, the newest ESA astronaut recruits, being that they might actually be people on a Mars mission, perhaps or a Moon mission at least. Yeah. Now, of course, because of of confidentiality uh, uh, issues, you know, we don't say everything we do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> during the tests. Uh, but it is obvious that we do tests um, where we have group uh, interactions um, under pressure, of course. Uh, and uh, the people who are who are in charge of this, they are also experts, which have really to 20, 30 years of experience in these kind of situations like Antarctica and, 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 and other uh, uh, similar environments. So yes, we are taking this into account and we have uh, the right people, you know, the psychologists and, and, and so on to, um, yeah, who are, who are in charge of, the, of certain phases of the recruitment of the selection. Actually, the applications just opened a few days ago, I think, or even yesterday. Yesterday morning. What is it today? Anyway. You can you thirty first of uh, March. Lots of public attention going into it. Uh, I, I hope we will get lots of very good quality applications. How do you how do you see this? What are what is ISA looking for? What what is the objective? How many? I know these are basic things, but what what is the the number of astronauts we are going to recruit? Um, yeah, first of all, we um, uh, want to recruit between four and six professional astronauts. So the ones who are currently, uh, we have seven currently. Um, of course, they have been recruited in 2008, 2009. So um, they will uh, be retiring not very soon, but still uh, we need a lot of, uh, we need several years to train the new ones and, and to have them, you know, uh, ready to fly and, and, and do uh, very complex things. So we have to, to plan already now, you know, for the, for the handover, so to say. Um, we also have to anticipate the fact that we want to have, of course, also Europeans on, on the moon surface. Now, obviously, um, we will not uh, have the current, um, uh, I mean, the, the next astronaut uh, uh, corps, you know, fly uh, in the first flight to the moon. You can imagine this. So, um, 
So it has to be very clear, uh, the flights to the gateway, we can t talk about what this is later on. Uh, so the station, which is will be, which will be a cislunar uh, station, which will be a, uh, kind of gateway to the moon surface. Uh, we will, uh, of course, uh, use the current astronaut corps because they will have the right experience. You know, you have to fly at least twice to the station and, uh, uh, you know, have all the experience of the EVAs and so on and so forth uh, to be to be the right stuff, so to say, to go to the gateway and around the moon and so on, because this will be a little bit more stressful than just going to the space station. So. Uh, which means that this four to six astronauts that who we, which we will select, they will of course first fly the regular flight, so to say, uh, uh, to the space station, and only then, which means the next decade, uh, will be fit, you know, to to do the next step, which means uh, uh, going to the moon. So. Um, we have a couple of new things. Uh, one is that we also want to recruit up to twenty uh, reserve astronauts. Uh, why do we do this? It's because we think we have uh, uh, new opportunities, and we spoke about Elon Musk and 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 uh, Dragon Crew, you know, possibilities, which means uh, and even the Boeing uh, uh, Starliner and so on. We have therefore the possibility to purchase, of course, additional flights to the ones we are are bartering with NASA. When I say we, it is the member states uh, uh, mostly. You know, if one member state say, "Oh, I have uh, you know one of the astronauts in in the in the reserve, and I'm ready to pay X million of euros," then we would recruit this person for four years as an ESA staff, as an astronaut, um, for this flight. But he would not be a career astronaut. If there is a flight for this national, we would then train the person and, and do everything we need to do for the flight and post-flight and, 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 and that's it. It would be a four years kind of contract. Um, the third aspect, which is new, is that we have uh, decided to be much more inclusive in, in in future uh, selections, which means that we have started what we call the para-astronaut project, which is actually a selection of one or two um, uh, people with disabilities, physical disabilities. And then we will see whether, how and whether we can uh, adapt the current spacecrafts um, to people who have these uh, uh, physical uh, disabilities. So that we can be more inclusive, you know, have a, have a, uh, also these uh, people uh, included in the program because, of course, obviously, in in everyday life, in at work and so on, and 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 uh, you know, in any town and so on, you know, you have adaptations to people who have disabilities, you know, at work, in in the street, to go to take trans uh, public transport. So why not adapting a space? flight, so to say, to have them also be able to fly. Of course, we cannot take any disability, so they're well-defined. And we don't promise anything because we're not sure whether we will succeed, uh, you know, because there are quite a number of safety issues that we will be um, will have to solve beforehand. Stephen Hawking did a parabolic flight, and I think when he came back, he mentioned that the lack of gravity, that for the first time in many years, he felt free. Um, I don't know if Absolutely. you remember that. Was that uh, 
sort of inspiring uh, in, a, in any way connected to um, this? Uh, probably so, but we did this as well with parabolic flights. Huh? We, we did it uh, as well uh, in Europe. So the ESA parabolic flights, we had also uh, uh, physically disabled people uh, flying as well. So we have a little bit of experience, so to say. But yeah, I don't know whether this was the inspiration, but uh, um, the, really the, 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 the real reason is that we want to see, to see how far we can go in in. in being inclusive. Now we talked about the, the, the selection a little bit, uh, but I, there is one additional thing I would like to say uh, before we forget is the fact that at, in, during the last election uh, in 2008 and 9, there were only 15% of female uh, uh, candidates. And uh, I think this is this is it has of course some some explanation probably the the the, the uh, yeah I mean I mean young young uh, young women they do less maybe uh, you know careers in in technical engineering uh, areas which is something we are of course looking for um, but the other thing is of course they don't I think they they don't dare or they didn't at least 10, 15 years ago uh, they. Usually, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I think things are they, absolutely, and this is exactly what we want now to push much more to say, hey, last time we had 15% of candidates which are female, and one in six became an astronaut. So it's the same proportion. 15% is one is one in six. It means that during the whole selection process, there was no bias in favor or against uh, uh, women. You know, so which means that if this time we have 50% of female candidates, we are sure to have 50% of female finalists. Do you, you know, because yeah. the selection doesn't uh, is not biasing uh, uh, towards one or the other gender. Do you think that there is a kind of hangover in some aspects of? The, the the whole ethos of the astronaut really comes all the way down from the right that stuff idea of the right yeah. stuff yeah the right stuff and 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 these soldiers that came back like Armstrong and 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 Aldrin and and do you think that plays into it and and how on earth then do we sort of overcome that that cultural image of the macho astronaut it is it is absolutely this absolutely we have we have this mental bias um of the of the testosterone needed which is not the case but let's say it's not the case anymore uh, let's put it this way you know um uh, in, in the 50s and 50s and and in in the 60s you know you really needed people who had you know cold blooded which means, you know, the fighter pilots, test pilots, and so on. And of course, at that time, there were not many, well, not even today, there are so many women in this profession. But so that is that was the bias. And of course, then at that time, you can understand that you didn't know, you know, before the first flight, you know, uh, Gemini and, 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 and so on, and, and, and the equivalents uh, in Russia. And so on. you didn't know what to expect. Uh, and therefore, you have just done a massive, you know, selection uh, uh, and to get really the top, top, top notch uh, kind of uh, people. Now, we have seen from the shuttle programs in, in the US uh, uh, during many years that, you know, uh, we don't need Superman, we don't need Superwoman to go to space. 
we need people who are able, first of all, to cope and, and, and uh, in a group. And I can tell you the, the first, uh, you know, right stuff, they were not able to cope with each other because they were just competing. Um, and uh, um, so we should have done uh, maybe some, some studies about the testosterone level, but okay, too late. Um, <laughs> so uh, no, what we really look for is people who can adapt, you know, to any situation, to a stressful situation and be able, you know, to work in a group. You know, there are seven people on board the space station uh, uh, from now on, uh, roughly an average. They just need to get along well. They just need to optimize um, the human relation aspect and so on and to be, uh, yeah, and to, and to do, I mean, the, the, the right things, which means that they have to be, of course, mentally, cognitively, um, uh, very, very, very fit and physically, um, of course. But even for the physical and the medical um, uh, examinations and tests, we don't look for the super fit person. It doesn't doesn't matter anymore. Um, of course, if you have if you have to do an EVA, you have to be physically fit and you know, but not super athletic. That's what uh, what, uh, what, uh, what I mean. Um, and you can be trained, of course, to do these kind of things. So uh, all in all, hopefully we can break this by just repeating, we don't look for Superman and superwoman. That's not what we, what we want. It's really interesting, especially, yeah, that, that, that the process doesn't bias between men and women once they're boarded on. And that, that is super interesting. But is there multiple, say, say if it was simplistic, like an ocean uh, personality test, for example, where you had the big five, is, is there multiple variations of that big five personality test that are acceptable? As in, or are you only looking for this really narrow um personality and, and i know that's a very simplistic way of putting it but are, are there multiple scenarios are there different types of people that can that can be astronauts essentially well first of all yeah first of all we 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 do of course a select out and that's more the psychological psychiatric side you know uh which we will be testing um that's the first thing now we want balanced people. We don't want one psychological profile. Hmm. That's not what we what we're looking for. If if that is the question, um, but again, I cannot say much more because uh, uh, we have to be fair with everybody and and not give information to some who are listening to this and some others who have not been able to listen to this. So we have to give the same uh, information to everybody to be to be fair and and ethical. But uh, uh, one should not be afraid of the psychological testing. What I'm saying here is, for the candidate, for people who are still hesitating, you know, to to apply, just go ahead. Just the fact to do the selection, to go through the selection, is already a very nice adventure. And I can speak for myself. I did it in the US and in, in, in Houston in, in, in the 90s. I went through it. Um, so it was really very nice and, 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 and rewarding. Um, and uh, at the end, it's also, you know, interesting to know how far you can go. And to do all these psychological tests uh, as much as you can, you know, um, uh, to, to, to go through all this is very interesting from a personal perspective as well. Because you will be, you will know more about you after the the selection than than before, which is interesting. Yeah.
super interesting. <laughs> yeah. If only I was I'm young tempted. enough, I'd do it. <laughs> I'm tempted. Well, what is, in fact, what is the, what's the age cap? Well, the age cap, we have decided that the age cap is 50. Uh, the, the, the reason is the following. It needs roughly, in average, five years of training after the selection. And then uh, you are, uh, if you're lucky, you get the first flight uh, relatively quickly, which means uh, still one and a half years more training. Um, if you are the last one in the, in the four or six uh, new ones to, to fly, uh, then it's many years later. You know, it can be 10, 12 years later after you have been selected for the first flight. So it means that if you're over 50, you know, we don't want to take the risk that people get, uh, you know, with aging and so on, some diseases that we hadn't foreseen and, and so on, uh, or can only do one flight because they're over 60 and then the second flight is, is a little bit tricky because of, you know, whatever, a physical condition and so on or or, or something else. So, so and actually, I must say, honestly, the, the younger, the better, because, of course, if we invest, you know, millions in the training and so on, it's better if we keep them for 20, 25 years uh, in, in, at ESA. You sort of answer a question we had in a previous episode. We interviewed Matthias Maurer, and then we were speculating if he will make it to, to the moon <laughs> as a favorite of the podcast. And uh, then we were making some numbers about his age and that he would be around 60. But then we, we remember that Paolo Nespoli flied when, flew when he was 60 as well. So we were wondering, yeah, okay, I, I guess we are still good to fly people in at least in his late 50s, right? Yes, that, 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 that is fine. Uh, absolutely. Um, I think even Claude Nicolier, the, the Swiss astronaut who flew five times you know, as an astronaut, I think his last flight, he was a little bit over 60, if I remember well. Um, and, and there have been many cases in, in at NASA. Um, now, of course, we have another, um, another element that we have to take into account. We cannot, even if we have the top-notch guy, we will not have him fly three, four, five, six times, you know. Because we want to have, we, are, we have 22 countries in ESA and the ESA programs. So it would be, and, and other associated uh, uh, member states as well. So it would be good to have as many countries, you know, have their own astronauts as possible. And therefore, having one of them fly five times doesn't make sense because it would be much better if we have, you know, many more flying twice maybe three times, um, than, than having uh, one or two flying too many times. So that that's also one of the elements that we want to take in, into account. And this is why we are, of course, also recruiting new ones. We could still go ahead a little bit further with, with the current ones, but then it would not be very uh, nice, so to say, to other countries who will not, who have, have not had um, an astronaut uh, yet, and they would have to wait 20 years to get one. That would not be a, a good strategy. Well, it, opening up to the, the, those shorter-term contracts, though, might we see more European astronauts based on those shorter contract ones, the sort of the, the ones where you're basically a country just goes, yeah, we can afford a, a seat on a dragon because it's nice and cheap essentially yeah then there are there are i mean for the, for the for the uh professional astronauts of course we aim at the six months uh flight where they have to do and train massively you know for mm -hmm. years 
on the operations on the space station, on the operation, uh, operating the experiments, doing very tricky, very complicated EVAs and so on. So for this, you need you need more than four years training, you know. Mm. The ones we would recruit for four years for one flight, it would be shorter flights. You know, can be weeks, can be maybe a couple of months, but but probably not more. And those opportunities will exist more and more uh, uh, as even from now on. So they would not need so much training because they would have, you know, certain tasks to do for a few weeks, maybe a couple of months on the ISS and would not have other responsibilities like the maintenance uh, and so on and, and very, very uh, tricky things to do. Um, yeah, so uh, this is why four years, we think, would be enough uh, because it's, it is, it is. I mean, typically... Four years is is just a, nearly the minimum training for a first real professional flight of long duration with complex uh, EVAs, which they wouldn't do then. Indeed, there is yeah. not enough time to train them, and it would the investment wouldn't wouldn't be you know, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, if you only train somebody for years just for one flight, that wouldn't be uh, interesting either for us, and even maybe not even for that person. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about missions uh, in a few years from now. These new astronauts will fly it's some of them in ten years, and then we are in the 2030s. And I understand that you are now working on the on the strategy on, on where we're going, what we're going to do in exploration in the 2030s and onwards. Where are we going in in this direction in, in a decade from now? Yeah. Um, first of all, let's recap quickly what we do in this decade. In this decade, we participate in the uh, uh, Gateway, um, and we are actually massively, so to say, participating in the Gateway because we will provide half of the of the modules of the Gateway, and uh, actually three quarters of the modules will be will be uh, built in Europe. Um, so, for this. And the participation in the Orion uh, uh, program, which is, of course, the vehicle which will go uh, uh, to the moon, around the moon, uh, and dock with the gate, dock, uh, do the docking with the gateway. We provide also the propulsion system, life support system, and 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 and, and energy uh, provision and so on, which is which is really uh, something very unique because we are really teamed up with NASA hand in hand for this. So, because of this, we will have three seats already. Program, yes. Yeah, we will already we already signed and agreed with NASA to have three seats on the, on the gateway, which will bring us probably to the end of this uh, of this decade. You know, if we depending on when these flights will happen, it's not 100% uh, defined yet. So, which means that we will have a good foot into the, the whole uh, moon exploration before the end of the decade. What we aim at. And uh, um, this is now what we are what we're uh, starting to make public is the fact that we want to negotiate and participate in the Artemis program even more, so that we can have one European, the, the first European, we will not just stop with one, the first European on the moon surface by the end of the decade. So this is the objective of the of the program. Um, then, of course, this has to continue. Now. To continue such a program on on moon landings, of course, with NASA, uh, we will not be able, you know, to have our own programs. And on the other hand, why should we um, uh, have a parallel program? We can do this with NASA, but we want to do it in a cooperative mode where we this time decide what we want to contribute. 
you know, if you put it simply, um, in the space station program, we did the Columbus Laboratory, but you know, the partners, the Russians and 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 the Americans could have done without us. You know, but we learned a lot by by providing uh, the, the Columbus and and of course later on also the the ATV the resupply uh, uh, vessels. But again, we are we are still small partners, less than ten percent of the utilization of the space station. From now on, we are really, as I said, for the Gateway and for the Orion uh, and the European Service Module, we're hand in hand completely integrated with with a NASA program, except on the landing. For the landing part, we're not, we're not uh, a part. So we have to find a way to be able to be fully, uh, so to say, compatible with human with human landings. And one of the possibilities we are really now strongly pushing is a European Large Lunar Lander. Uh, so this lander will then be compatible with a human landing, which means it can land very close to a, a, a human uh, uh, landing or vice versa, somebody, the human landing can land close to our uh, uh, lander to provide logistics, science, you know, and, and technology validate uh, um, experiments and so on. Um, and in exchange of this service, so to say, we would then negotiate, you know, uh, flights for, for European astronauts on the moon. Now, you have to see it this way. If you if, with the landing systems um, will be selected uh, by NASA systems or system uh, um, on the 30th of April uh, this year, then we will know a little bit more which options the NASA will will take. But whatever option, it will be relatively like like the Apollo program. You land two people, but they don't have a lot of hardware that they can carry with them because you know you have to have a lot of margin, you know, uh, for the mass to land where you need to land and to and to take off again, you know, with, with the ascender. So you will not take, you know, a ton of, of hardware with you uh, for each flight. So the hardware, the scientific hardware, the logistics, even food for long duration stays and so on has to be brought separately with a separate lander. And this is exactly what we are proposing. The advantage is uh, for us very, very simple. We do the end-to-end -end service. We do the launch because this uh, 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 lander will launch with an Ariane 64. Um, we will do the operations, we will do the landing, and we will do the operations on the surface um, so we have the end-to-end. -end. And we have what I call strategic resilience. In case something goes wrong with the U.S. program and, and so on, for whatever reason, we can still use the same system to land only scientific instrumentation, including a rover, including a lot of things which we could do automatically. You see, so we have now the strategy to say we want to provide something that we choose. So we have chosen to do the the, the this larger the lander, and we are fully compatible. And this is why we have now already entered in discussion with NASA with human landings. That is that is the new strategy for this part of the program. Of course, we have also Mars uh, uh, Mars exploration activities and and future of of uh, low Earth orbit uh, strategy as well. This this um, being resilient and independent seems to be 
sort of lesson learned from the, the, the story of ExoMars and the, and the launcher? Uh, yes. Yes, clearly. Um, you know, uh, international cooperation is all very nice, but codependence is good, but not for everything and, 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 and all the time. You know, this is this is this is of course the lesson learned. We're completely very pleased, you know, to work with NASA. We learned a lot for the, in the space station program. We talked just about the astronauts. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's an excellent uh, you know um, uh, test base, uh, the ISS to go further to the moon and, and to Mars later on. Without our our participation in the ISS, we wouldn't have been able, you know, to have our astronauts and and all these uh, experience and the scientific program behind it. So we learned a lot. Then, therefore, we could do the second step, which is in the current decade, fully part of the of the gateway program. You know, fifty fifty, uh, nearly with with NASA, um, and and then of course also have the means in the meantime. You know, to uh, be able to say now we also want to have our own contribution where we decide what to do because the gateway has been a, a US decision and we of course were the first ones so to say knocking on the door and say oh we can do this and 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 it has worked um again we have less than 10% uh, of uh, of uh, you know resources so to say um uh, for the ISS and for the gateway, we provide 50% and it's completely integrated with, with the NASA program. You know, they cannot do without us. We cannot do without them. Uh, we could remove the, the Columbus from the space station. Nobody would, uh, well, it wouldn't, it's not critical. But if you remove the international habitation module from the gateway, there is no real gateway. If we remove the, the telecommunication and the refueling uh, capability and the viewing capability that we provide as well, there is no real gateway. So this is the, the the intermediate step, and the next step will be we will do things you know that we decide on our own, as I just explained. After the moon landings and the gateway, and, and, and all that pans out successfully, what's the current thinking? Yeah, into into the twenty thirties with things like uh, Mars, and and what what is Europe's thinking with human exploration and robotic exploration of Mars, moving into the yeah. next decade? Um, before answering this Mars aspect, I would just continue a little bit what we will be doing on the moon. Mm. On the moon, we are, of course, uh, what we think of is not just to, you know, think about a, a, a moon base and so on, which, uh, you know, the media talks a lot about, but that's not my first priority. The first priority on the moon is surface mobility. And surface mobility, not just with a jeep like we did on the, or the US did with the Apollo program, we have to have a pressurized uh, capability for habitation, so to say, which is mobile. Uh, because, you know, just staying a few kilometers around a, a landing is not very interesting from a scientific point of view. So what we imagine is a, is a, is, is a surface mobility system, which is at the same time a habitat and the vehicle. The target is to uh, live much longer than just a few days or 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 two weeks on the, on, on, on the moon. I mean, a moon day is 14 days light and the moon night is 14 days night. Now at night, you know, the temperatures at the soft pole <laughs> uh, go down to uh, uh, minus 157, 170 degrees. Uh, and in some areas, uh, completely shadowed areas, even minus 200. So you have to survive, you know, two weeks in these conditions. 
So, and this is the real, real big challenge that we will have. And this is also something we're looking into. Now, for Mars, actually, you need the same. You know, if you land somewhere on Mars, even if it's a very interesting spot from the scientific point of view, search for life and so on, it's of course much better to travel and 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 to move around. We have we see this with perseverance. You know, we you don't, I mean, landing, uh, you know, something on Mars and uh, without wheels doesn't make a lot of sense. So, which means that whatever we learn on the surface mobility and and the, and these pressurized habitats, mobile habitats, we can duplicate. And, and will have the, the right experience to do it also on, on, on the Martian surface. Even for the first landing on, on, on Mars, um, you know, just landing a couple of people on Mars and, and, and have them do EVAs around the landing site is not enough if you imagine the investment that we will have, you know, to do this. Um, just very quickly, it, we estimated about at least 10 SLS launchers, so the Space Launch System, mm -hmm. which is 3,000 tons. You know, uh, it's a super heavy uh, rocket like like the Saturn V. We need probably at least 10 of them to do the, the convoys to go to Mars and, and to land there and so on. So you can imagine then if you do this, you rather do the... I mean, whatever it takes, you know, to have surface mobility, to travel for weeks and so on, and to go to different sites, collect samples and, and do the in-situ analysis and so on and so forth. So this is currently what, what we think uh, we will be doing. Now, you have also to go to Mars before landing. And there also, our strategy is to, uh, is to position ourselves to, uh, um, to be sure to have a seat, so to say, on the first mission to Mars, hopefully very international at that time. We want to make sure that we are, um, uh, that, no, uh, that we are essential to the mission. And to do this, one of the, of the, of the avenues I'm, I, I'm currently pushing is to say we have to be the specialist, worldwide specialist of survivability in, in, in a habitat, you know. Um, probably the mission, the first mission to Mars, uh, let's imagine four or five people uh, two and a half years in a box. Two of them will have the chance to 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 land, like on 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 the moon programs, uh, the, which are foreseen, and the other ones will stay will stay on board. So the ones who will stay on board will stay in this box for two and a half years. You know, so you have to imagine all the breakthroughs and the innovation you need, you know, to do this safely. If you have an issue or problem, a severe problem on the space station, within a few hours you can be back, you know, with the lifeboats and, uh, so to say, which is the capsules used to go to to the station. If you have a big issue on the moon, a few, you, okay, it takes a few days, but you, you can you can come back. Once you depart from Mars, you cannot do a U-turn. It's just orbital mechanics. You have to do the whole circle, you know, around the sun, uh, and it will take two and a half years, full stop, you know. Um, and therefore, it will be very, very, very different. It's one, two orders of magnitude more complex to go to Mars and to go to the moon, not just because of the distance. So, and this is why we have now to think strategically, What, where can we, be you know uh, uh, indispensable for these missions, and at the same time, what will bring us the spin-offs uh, which will would which we will have or we should have uh, even before going to Mars, and habitability. 
survivability, uh, you know, recycling technologies, uh, um, you have to do even breakthroughs, you know, in, in clothing and, you know, you will not have a washing machine and wash your clothes every day, you know. Um, so, there is a list of hundreds of challenges that we have to, to tackle and the, most of those will have very interesting uh, spin-offs on, on, uh, for everyday's life, you know, even, even for daily life at home, like how do you, how do you uh, cope with dust, you know, in the, in the long run. Um, so a lot of these things uh, we should position, should position us, I mean, as Europeans up front now, even if it only happens in 20 years. It's too late to say when the decision is made to, to Mars and say, oh, by the way, I would like to do this. Ah, too late. Somebody else is doing it. So that's that's part of the strategy is to, to pre-position and to position ourselves uh, 20 years ahead, which, you know, to make the right decision and the right, uh, uh, give the right orientation to the industry and, and space and non-space industry, by the way, so that we are... Uh, the ones who will have the expertise uh, uh, to be part of it. And then, of course, as a result, there will be one European on Mars. So is is that the thinking behind the pushing for moving habitats on the moon to prove out that technology, to get the expertise and to become the world experts at it? Uh, that's uh, that's the intention as well. So it's not only one expertise we want. We want a couple of expertises. We cannot cover everything. I'm pretty sure we will not be, uh, you know, uh, developing the super heavy uh, launcher because this is a huge, huge uh, program and very costly. We see it; uh, it's billions of 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 euros. We rather do something that the others don't do yet uh, and where we can position ourselves and have really a critical um, a critical area that, that, that we cover, which again has spin-offs, uh, you know, uh, autonomous vehicles, surviving the night, um, the harsh night on, on, on the moon, surviving for, for uh, months, you know, on, on, on Mars and so on. Uh, with whatever technology we will have at hand for the energy uh, supply and, 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 and the mobility and, and the virtual presence and, and so on. Even think about holographic presence and uh, tactile interfaces and so on. So all of this will 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 help, uh, you know, uh, in in other areas like the automotive sector or any, uh, I mean, a lot of other 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 um, industrial sectors. Uh, the podcast normally closes with we have these two questions that we ask every every guest. They are surprise questions. We're going to put you on the spot. They are very difficult. Uh, the first one is, if you could bring uh, an old explorer from the past, someone that you could show, explorer, scientist, that you could show them what we are doing today, who would you choose? Uh, probably one of the, of the, of the explorers who, uh, which, who was with Scott Edmondson uh, oh, yeah. to, uh, to the South Pole. Because um, those people, you know, they, they had this in their genes, you know, to uh, just to go ahead without knowing whether they will succeed, you know. Today, they would be so surprised that we are so careful and we don't, you know, take risk uh, anymore. So it would be very surprising for them, you know. They just went ahead, even with po ponies and, and, and dogs, and just, you know, straight ahead, South Pole, let's try it, kind of. Uh, this was really uh, the adventure, so to say. Um, today, they would be so surprised on the technology we're using um, 
to be, so to say, 101% safe. Uh, which, by the way, wasn't really the case for Apollo because the, the, it was a race and they took massive risks. Um, we have seen this with yes. Apollo 13 and, and every uh, you know, analyst today uh, who looks at technical risk uh, sees that they have really taken a lot of risk. And this is also why we haven't been back to the moon so fast and, and it's, it's still so expensive. It's because this time we will not allow you know, such, uh, such big risks. What, what do you think the breaking point happened in which we went into this overcautious mode? Was it the Challenger? Well, there was not only Challenger, there was Challenger and, and, and Columbia. Columbia, so there were two of those. Yes, but it's also, it's also a cultural thing, uh, mostly in Europe, actually, um, not to take so much risk. If you, if you look at Elon Musk, you know, he's now at what? Number 11 explosion? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, and he just goes ahead, you know. If ESA would have one, two, three failures of a launcher uh, sequentially, everybody would say, hey, something is wrong with this agency, you know. Uh, we can't we can't do this so it's a mentality thing so when you of course when you deal with governmental and and, and uh, institutional activities and and of course you you take uh, you use the money of the taxpayer you have to be much more careful but then you get into a, a vicious circle because the more careful the more expensive and and the longer it takes to to to, to do something and then okay. retroactively people say oh but this was this took a long time it is very expensive but it's 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 this chicken and egg problem, whereas uh, uh, you know for other uh, activities in the U.S., if people put their own money, I mean they can do as many crashes as they want, and <laughs> I must say even the general public at the end starts to like it, you know, because they know that something will happen. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Actually, before I ask you my, my the, the final music question, because I didn't quite finish the the my very first question, and my 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 where I was heading to with the very first question was how when because you you've written quite a few articles and books and 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 talks and things and science, and science fiction. fiction, and and I'm interested about your approach of. How do you build enthusiasm for for particularly when you're talking it on a kind of more sort of factual level, like science, kind of how things might play out over the next decade or so? How do you uh, avoid the pitfalls of say Elon Musk, where where he's t perhaps selling a, a a more ridiculous version of it? How do you balance it? How do you balance that that the the narrative of of trying to maintain the excitement while actually being a little bit more reasonable with the facts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are two things. One is advanced planning and one is foresight, I would say. Advanced planning is what we, what I do, so to say, with my team and at these in general every day. We plan 10, 20, 30 years ahead. You know, we plan the gateway. We plan the Mars sample return mission since nearly 30 years, we will do it now and we will have the samples only, uh, uh, you know, in 20, 2031 uh, at the earliest. And then we will analyze it for several several tens of, of, of uh, several decades. Um, so I would say when you're in there, so to say, it's just, it's just a matter of logic and of course strategy and so on, which is very interesting. But then at the same time, what I'm doing to do foresight and to liberate a little bit my 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 mind, um, because it's at the end it's a little bit boring, you know, to convince the member states and everybody, you know, that 
this is the right strategy, it has to make sense, it has to be logical, it has to be feasible, uh, you have to do the costing properly and so on. It's very constraining. So what I do uh, on the side as a hobby, I do uh, I do complete foresight, which means what will be space exploration in 2080? We are in, in 2021, it's exactly 60 years uh, since the first uh, uh, human in space. And I imagine what space exploration will be in 60 years from now. And therefore, I'm uh, uh, doing a, 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 yeah, a comic. Uh, of course, I'm not a, a genius in drawing, so I have a, I have a nice and a good team of, of Belgian, uh, um, a team in Belgium. And uh, uh, by the way, it's called uh, uh, Red Safari. And, um, and this is where I imagine, you know, a little bit more liberated, like you know, and Elon Musk thinks, oh yeah, we'll go to Mars and we have, you know, Mars bases and so on. I'm a little bit more realistic. I say it's in 2080 and not and not and not in five years from now. And then I honestly I can imagine a lot of things which have actually I have seen now an influence on my on my daily work. Because I imagine, uh, you know, cyclers, uh, which go to Mars and come back and go to Mars and come back and so on constantly. Um and 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 even now we are even now adapting this kind of thing to uh, the the programs that we are working on today, and of course I imagine a lot of things which will happen between um, you know artificial intelligence and robotics and the conflict in the spacecraft that I have imagined, which is by the way a nuclear uh, a spacecraft uh, pro uh, with a propulsion a nuclear propulsion, which is also something we are we are thinking of. So a lot of these things. Um, it's interesting to see what, you know, just a free thinking, so to say, and doing scenarios uh, which are which are not sci-fi, it's not science fiction, it's fiction science, it's still plausible, but it liberates, so to say, my, my mind, and therefore, uh, more and more I see that it has an influence of, on, on my daily life uh, uh, as well. Oh, yeah, I, I absolutely love that. I love the, the whole idea of having sort of blue sky thinking that creates that zooms you out a little bit about from the day-to-day -day mundanity of just the day job i suppose <laughs> yeah, however exciting your day job is you can sometimes get lost in the woods can't you yeah i mean uh, let me take an example in my uh, i'm doing the scenarios and the text of these graphic novels um so but i have also to imagine to imagine the whole environment the spacecraft environment how people will live in an interface and of course there is uh, there is much more than this in the story but like virtual presence uh, you know holographic I am, uh, you know, so I invent things like a haptic holographic, where you can touch the hologram and and have, you know, the, the physical feedback, force feedback, and so on of of the hologram. And then you say, you can say right away, oh, in ten years we'll have a European on the moon. How will people at that time want to interface with this person? You know, uh, how will we transmit the information so that we can have a real time? to see in real time what this person will see or do. Uh, and therefore immediately say, oh, by the way, I need, uh, uh, you know, uh, fast, um, uh, I mean, broadband bandwidth. Uh, uh, so I need uh, need to a little bit, imagine a little bit more the telecommunications aspect. I need to see what kind of cameras I need to embed. Uh, for example, the lander, if we land our lander, 
we should have then cameras filming the astronauts coming, picking up the, the you know the scientific experiments and 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 installing the whole thing and so on. But the engineers themselves, they don't think about this. They just they have a task. They need to do a lander. It needs to land. Needs to do the task. Okay, fine, but haven't you forgotten a few cameras and a few other things, you know, to make it, to, 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 to do the link with, with the people who will want to know, uh, you know, how this, uh, uh, how this works. And, and to, in 10 years from now, you have to imagine, of course, all the telecommunication and, and uh, the iPhones will not be what they are today. They will probably have holographic uh, uh, displays and so on. So you need to anticipate already how the communication and the social media will be on earth so that you plan the right thing in uh, during these missions. And this is also something I learned when I was doing the scenarios of the of the graphic novel. Yeah, so you you sound like a very uh, I mean I love it. I love that I love that idea that creativity and uh, c- comes into engineering in a, in a massive way and and it's and it obviously drives it a lot. Um, the, the final question we normally ask each of our guests and and we've probably been a bit unfair because we probably didn't prime you on it was um uh if you have you got a piece of music that you associate with space that you would like to put on our uh, space music playlist. Uh I will I will disappoint you. <laughs> um, I'm not really a music listener, <laughs> um, but but uh, I mean I mean Space Odyssey 2001 <laughs> I think is something which is uh, which is still uh, t- still today very futuristic, so to say. Yeah, Richard Strauss's yeah. what is it, Zach's Zarathustra or whatever it is, or something was stressful would be yeah, would be yeah, Alien. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first one the first there yeah, the first alien one of my favorite films for sure well is there is there a good place to see some of your kind of futuristic writings and and blogs and any, anything like that i mean yeah if you if you just go on the internet and you and you type uh, my name and and red safari uh it's now in english the first uh volume uh, we have two volumes in french we will have the a dutch version very very soon and um in a few weeks, we will have the digital version on online uh, as well. Yeah, and uh, for those who read French, I have done. Uh, I have written a book about my Antarctic expedition because I was lucky enough to go really inland. Uh, 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 ah, nice <laughs> to the Concordia station, but with a ground traverse. Um, uh, that was that's really exceptional. You know, starting from uh, Tasmania with the uh, with the icebreaker. Uh, going, uh, reaching the shore and not being able to reach the shore actually uh, with the boat because there was too much uh, sea ice. Then the helicopter, and then this um, this traverse uh, was six. On this, we were only six people. Uh, uh, by the way, at the same time as uh, Thomas Pesquet did his first flight, so we did. We had an interesting tweet exchange. We were six people traversing the Antarctica, and they were six people on board the space station. It was quite, was quite funny. Um, yeah, this is uh, this is a lifetime experience, uh, and which I have, uh, yeah, retraced to say in in this book, which is called Terminus Antarctique. Uh, maybe I can say a word. Uh, also, unfortunately, it's only in French. I'm also yeah. uh, editor in, in chief of uh, of a MOOC, which is a magazine book. Uh, so it's quite a big thing. It's 248 pages uh, uh, every every six months or so. Um, the second issue will come out in in a, in a few weeks from now, and it's really I give I give really the opportunity mostly to uh, to ESA ESA staff to write uh, extensive, you know. Um, 
uh, articles about what they're doing, but of course they have to write it in the way that it's uh, for a general public, for for laymen, which is very difficult. That's why it needs a. Uh, um, uh, uh, an, an editor-in-chief, so to say, <laughs> to be on the neck of, of the people who write it. Um, we have also always uh, very extensive uh, interviews uh, from Thomas Pesquet, Frank Devine, Samantha Cristoforetti, or Claudie Enyore. Um Yeah, and uh, yeah, a lot of uh, very, very, so to say, uh, uh, interesting uh, uh, features in, in each of these volumes. And again, it's it's very nicely illustrated. Uh, that's why it's called a, a magazine book. It's a magazine because there's a lot of illustrations, a lot of pictures, and the book because it's 250 pages. <laughs> so uh, also something to be looked at, uh, but unfortunately only in French for the time being. It, are you looking for translators? <laughs> well, I'm looking for money to pay the translators. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good evening. Have a nice evening and a nice weekend. You're listening to the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. I feel as though I need to get him back on now I've absorbed some of the answers and know that there's way more to uncover there. Yeah, I have to say, I, we, have, we have to start doing round two with every guest that we had so far. Oh my God, yeah. That'd Indeed. be brilliant. But lots of information on the on the astronaut selection. That was pretty interesting. Really uh, interesting. I got captivated by the logic behind the choice of types of projects that ESA should do on Moon and Mars exploration in a very strategic way to remain uh, essential to the international partners. I thought that that was very clever. Super uh, clever, isn't it? I'd, I'd, I'd not heard that before either. The... Um the things like the Mars and, and the moon lander. lunar landers, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really clever. No, of course That's I knew about the moon lander. I just did not realize all the logic that is around the, that, that choice. Hmm. That's super interesting. That is super interesting. Uh, and actually, I thought what, one of the, the extraordinary things about the astronaut selection was the sort of three-tiered approach of professional astronauts, uh, maybe sort of, sort of a reserve. bit more, f yeah, reserve fl fly-by-night. <laughs> astronauts and the uh what are, what are they called they're called parastronauts para the astronauts with physical disability i thought that was really cool isn't it clearly a a really great program actually when i was thinking about the these astronauts in reserve so it sort of reminds me of the case of matthias which in a way in in a way it was not meant to work that way <laughs> I remember his story, he just started working as an ESA employee and, and what was it, five years after he gets asked again if he wants to be an astronaut. And, and But it's different because these reserve astronauts would go for short terms and, and Matthias is going for a full uh, six months to the space station. Yeah, I was trying to, in my head, when he was talking about they have to have been gone to space at least twice before they go to the gateway. So, of course, you've got... Um, Thomas. Thomas, Pesquet, Thomas, Pesquet. Thomas Pesquet is flying soon, in April. Yeah. So he's going to have his second flight under his belt. So he's going to be a gateway contender, isn't he? Yes, but Alexander uh, Gerst as well, uh, yep. German. He already flew twice. He was commander. Luca Parmitano as well. Uh, Samantha Cristoforetti will fly again early next year. Matias will fly for the first time this year. So when's old Twin Peaks going to go? <laughs> I, I don't know. How many times uh, has Team Peak been? Uh, well, he's only been once. He's only been once. So, okay. yeah. Sort of uh, doing... He's on a sabbatical, isn't he? He's on a sabbatical for the UK Space Agency promoting space and buying motorbikes and things. Um, so, presumably, he goes back and trains for his next flight. 
But he doesn't have one at the moment, does he? I, I do recall the previous ESA director general uh, stating in some public forum that he was trying to get all these astronauts of this um, generation to fly twice. Yeah. Well, that makes but, economic sense, doesn't it? I mean, it, it's it's actually very expensive for them not to fly twice. Well, this is what, it's a waste of money, isn't it? This is actually it? what Didier was saying in the current selection. Yeah. You, you want to get your return on investment. You're investing so much on the training that to send them once would be... Well, it's yeah. like training to be a doctor and then only ever doing one surgery and go, well, I've done now. <laughs> It's like, yeah, okay. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. So yeah, um, uh, yeah. It was well, it was a great interview. I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish with uh, Samantha Cristoforetti's uh, quote about the power astronauts. Uh, she says, "We did not evolve to go into space. So when it comes to space travel, we're all disabled. Why should we stop someone that's that's an excellent scientist going to the space station?" Look, I, I tend to go into science fiction often and into the the Expanse in particular more than once because I just mm. love those books. And the TV show is not bad either, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, the and, last series was brilliant. Yeah. I loved it, yeah. yeah. That was and, really good. And, and if you keep reading the books, it gets even better. Again, you in this science fiction environment, you have humans uh, being born and growing in space and the sort of uh, abilities that you need are different depending if you are on an asteroid living inside an asteroid if you're living in a, in a planet with a smaller gravity. So it's important to research on that now. Yeah. You know, I, I have been interviewing just also this week uh, another medical doctor for the Spanish version of the podcast, Interplanetario. We should, yeah, yeah, we should, we should um, point that out just in case there's some poor Spanish listener who's really struggling. You can switch over to Julio's Spanish version. Well, I, well, obviously, don't leave me. We're doing a sort of soft, <laughs> soft release. Uh, we want to get some, some, some interviews published fully before we go into it. But his name is Alejandro Garbino. Okay, he's a physician mm. in the U.S., uh, originally from Uruguay. I found very interesting what he was explaining. That so far, the knowledge we have of space and humans in space is very much attached to the selection of who gets to be an astronaut. So you have all these right stuff, f- superhumans in space. So you're, you're sort of, well, the rest of the medicine deals with um, people in poor health, but in a very good environment, which is our planet. Space doctors. That when you go to space, they actually clear up. That'd be, that'd be a Or that could thing. even be an advantage. Yeah, or alleviated. Yeah, or could be an advantage. Yeah, you're less prone to radiation sickness and things like that. Yeah, yeah or, that, or, or, or uh, ocular losing your yeah, or losing your eyesight. balance. Yeah, or things like that. I mean, mm-hmm. in the end, that that is evolution, right? In a certain environment, someone that might be at the disadvantage, if there is a sudden change in that environment, they might start thriving, and eventually yeah. they become that becomes the dominant uh, dominant uh, design in in that uh, in that organism. Once we get several, several uh, generations of humans being born, living in space, we will have to start diverging, right? If say, say if you had asthma on Earth, 
it turned out, you know, that you've got asthma on Earth, and that's because of a slight trade-off that your body's doing to kind of the way that your body is balanced. And it turns out that when you go to space, that that having asthma, it, it alleviates in space and is an advantage, as in you're metabolically more able to cope with the space environment. I'm obviously I'm making asthma up as a as an example. Mm-hmm. It's highly unlikely that that'd be the case. But if it was, my my point is that 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 we've kind of everyone exists on a spectrum and some of the things that may appear bad on earth on that spectrum are good in space. And like you said, that would be the those are the kind of little seeds and kernels of shifting the spectrum to the left or to the right as part of an evolutionary our evolution out into space as as our species eventually starts to diverge indeed look we we had a very small set of humans going to space so far mm. and they have most of the time been selected either because of their wallet in some cases <laughs> but in most cases because of their their aptitude to what we believe are the best the best characteristics characteristics to go to space but at the end of the day, lots of research goes into it. it. The requirements evolve. But at the beginning, there was a lot of guessing, right? Yeah. There was the, the, just you think, okay, fighter pilots, test pilots, because of the you know, the type of machines you're going to have to deal with and because they are in the top physical shape and you can do lots of tests. But it was a guess. Maybe they could have thought that it was better instead of hiring a, just the first generation, instead of hiring test pilots, you could hire, I don't know, submarine operators. Hmm. Why? Why didn't that happen? Do you know what? No? You can see you can see the astronaut selection process from two angles as well. You can see the selection of the right stuff people as people who were straight out of a war. You know, fighter pilots straight out of a couple of wars, Vietnam, etc. And you could say their lives didn't really matter. You know, these were people that had already been used as target practice for the enemy. And it was like, so because this is so dangerous, we're not going to put civilians and highly trained submarine captains in there. We're just going to use these people who can fly and they're then they're pretty expendable. So you can see it. It's not the fact they're special. It might be that they're expendable. I would not call them expendable, but it's certainly people that have already faced dangers in their life and have kept cool and had survived. Because I guess right at the beginning, what you mostly wanted was someone that in a space capsule, anything goes wrong wrong and, and the person panics instead of just keeping... Think of Apollo 13. If you were in Apollo 13, Inside, oh, I'd be, I'd be cool as. That's why, I, that's why I'd breeze through astronaut selection. You, you video. would be cool as a cucumber. I would have panicked. Yeah, well, that, that's the difference between you and me. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I accept my fears. <laughs> yeah, well, I was like, well, I, I don't, I don't, I know no fear. Um, Julio, we got to wrap this up. I'm going to wrap this up by shouting out to the to the Uber patrons who help every month to make this podcast possible. And you know who you are. There's the classics in here as well, some of whom, of course, have co-hosted. Bob Hodges, John Bennock, Kenton Hockanson, Niklas Gillenstein, Ronald Hatcher, James Wood, Marissa Davis, Tristan Hind, Neil Hansen, Mark Schoen, Christopher Andreessen, Malta Keisling, Rob Annabel, 
Patrick Haywood, Stas Shusha, Gene Wojtanik, Alden Vala, Bob Moore, and Jordan El Kurdi. What is a pretty cool list of people? They are this, my superheroes. They are my superheroes. And uh, this month we were joined by Thomas, Roberto, Bill, and Drew. So welcome to the family and get yourselves on Discord. I've actually got a week off, Julio. I might be able to get on top of life again. Yeah, no, I, I'll just keep working. <laughs> I, I, but you I, work I in space. I, that's not that's not work. I love my job, but I, I think I have the Monday off, but then I just keep working. Too much to do. Too much to do. No time to rest. No rest for the wicked space engineers. There's no end. There's no end to this. No, there is no end to the European Space Agency. Thank goodness. Bye, my space Bye, Matt.